Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. This is the letter to the church in Ephesus. And so we begin reading at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to be with us and bless us. We pray, Lord, that you would open our understanding to your Holy Word and by your Spirit, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, open your Word to our hearts and minds that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you remember in uh, chapter 1, in verse 19, God told John, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to him, said, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So that's pretty much understood to be the threefold division of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 primarily is John writing and telling us what he saw. That's his vision of Christ. We've gone over that the last couple of weeks. So he saw wonderful things. He sees much symbolism there, the sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished brass as if they'd passed through a furnace. Um, and, you know, these are symbolic of Christ who went through hell for us, whose eyes see everything. There's no subterfuge or hiding from him. Uh, and his word comes forth, God's word comes forth from the mouth of Christ. And like we're told in Hebrews 4, like a two-edged sword cutting to the division of uh, joints and marrow and uh, from separating the soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So John has this vision of Christ. So he wrote that. Those were the things that he had seen, as it says in verse 19. And the things which are is generally understood to be chapters 2 and 3. The things that are were the seven churches there on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, or the western portion of it. Not all the churches are on the coast. Some are inland about 100 miles or so. Um, but it's kind of a circular road that goes up. You have Ephesus, and if you follow the seven churches, it just goes up right around and ends at Laodicea. So these seven churches are addressed, and those are the things which are. So that's the state of the churches at that time toward the end of the first century. And then the things which will take place after this, that is, after uh, the state of the church is described, the things that are future events. And that begins at uh, 
chapter four. Some say, well, really chapter five, because as the scroll of destiny or of the future begins to be unfolded, we're told those things. So we come now to Ephesus. This is one of the things that, that was, okay, the things which are, John was told. We're looking at it in a past tense situation. We're 20 centuries away or just about. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right now, in verse one, this is to whom it's addressed. All right. So first it's addressed to the angel. And I mentioned, you know, some there's some debate. Well, do churches have special angels over them? And if you notice, when you read through these seven letters to these churches, they're really addressed to the angel. It's, it, it does say at the end of each one, he that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, plural, but uh, he's really talking to the angel. Now, in our modern English, we've lost the you know singular pronoun. You know, I like to use sometimes the old King James because it has the these and the thous in it. And as you know, I've mentioned this, I think, hopefully not too many times, but enough times you should know it. The and thou is when you're talking to one person. Okay, if we went back, you know, in time to King James England or a little bit before that, Elizabethan English, and we spoke that form of English, if you're talking to one person, you use thee, thou, thine, or thy, okay? If you're talking to more than one, you use you and your. Well, over the centuries, we lost that. We started using you and your uh, for everything. And so now we, you know, we use you and your. And to make that distinction of plural, we have little colloquial things that come up in the South. As you know, it's y'all or you all. Uh, I've actually heard in the East Coast, you know, use guys, okay, uh, which is to make it plural. Um, there's other forms that I won't go into. Y'all seems to be about the most popular one that everyone understands. But that's when you're talking to more than one person, for the most part. If you listen to Southerners talk or people that use that type of English or that form of our language, that dialect, you'll find generally they use y'all when they're talking to more than one person, although sometimes they don't, but most of the time that's what it is. We try to create a plural pronoun because we're using the old plural pronoun for the singular. Does that make sense? Okay, what, what's that all about? If you look in a King James Bible, you'll see that the, the angel is being addressed, the angel of each church is being addressed throughout these epistles, these little letters that are written. Thou, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, etc. He's talking to one person here, but he's addressing the church through that person. So, and looking at this, I was thinking, well, okay, the word angelos that we translate angel in the English, as I mentioned, there's plenty of places throughout the New Testament where it's referred to as a messenger. I notice in the New King James, it has a marginal reference saying, or messenger, because it's often used of people. And so the question is, well, this is, is this a heavenly angel or is this a messenger of the church? And I pretty well conclude this is a messenger from the church. And the reason why is because they're called to repentance. The angels over the churches, angels are sinless beings. The Bible refers to the angels that sin and says they've been cast down into darkness. The Bible also speaks of the elect angels. These are angels that are sometimes called to repent, and we see this in this epistle here. So it takes it out of, I think, the realm of it being a, a, a heavenly, spiritual, sinless being angels are made in the image of God, very much like us. They can communicate and speak, but they don't have physical bodies, and um, they're different than we are. These angels seem very clearly to be men in the churches. 
Some have said it was perhaps the teaching elder, the pastor of the church. Others say it could be a messenger that was sent, but it's someone that the Lord holds responsible for the condition of the churches. And if you go through and read the scriptures, it's probably an elder in the church, more likely a messenger, one who spoke, a teaching elder, perhaps. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So that's to whom it's written. I wanted to cover that aspect so we understand who's being addressed. These things say, so here we now we have, a, we're going to have a reference to who Jesus is, and this applies to this church. Who is this Lord Jesus that's speaking? So it refers back to the vision that John had. These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, those were the angels of the churches. Christ holds those in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Remember, the last verse of chapter one tells us, uh, the, the church, the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Christ walks in their midst. That means Jesus is involved and interested and active in the life of the local congregations. And so it's addressed to them. And so it reminds them that everything going on in Ephesus is not a matter of indifference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have quite a bit of information about the Ephesian church throughout scripture, if you know, in the book of Acts, we have its founding, we, we have information in chapter 18, talks about the, the Paul passed through there in uh, chapter 19 through chapter, uh, chapter 19, 1 through 21, a whole chapter, the 19th chapter is all about Ephesus. The chapter 20 is when Paul called for the elders of the church to meet him a little bit south of where Ephesus is at Miletus, because he was on his way to Jerusalem he wanted to address the elders, and he let them know that he would be—they wouldn't see him ever again. He knew it was the last time they were going to meet, and so we have his admonition to the elders, and that's uh, in Acts chapter twenty, verses sixteen through thirty-eight. And that does have some reference to what we're going to be reading in this epistle. So we know quite a bit about them. If you notice here, Christ commends the churches or the church here. He commends the Ephesian church. And lets them know that he was aware, as he said, that uh, they, they labored hard. They didn't put up with error. They didn't put up with liars. They had people claiming to be apostles. Now, if you know in your Bible, if you're familiar with Paul's address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, it's a good passage to take a look at when Paul... Uh, wrote to them, he warned them, and really in verse 28, he says to the elders in Eph at Ephesus, this is a generation probably before what we're reading in Revelation, but he said, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says this, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You're going to have heretics and aggressive people come into the church. Uh, also, he says in verse 30, from among yourselves, that is from the elders of the church, the presbyters there in Ephesus, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So you're going to have heretics. By the way, the word heretic in Greek, we understand to mean false teaching because that's a, a good application. It actually means divisive. You're going to have divisive men rise up, he said. They're going to speak perverse things, and they're going to draw away disciples after themselves. 
So he warned him, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And we have to read verse 32. He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul, in his last message to the Ephesian uh, leadership told them, be aware of division. You're going to have men come in among you who are going to be wolves. They're going to savage the flock. You're going to have men within your own midst who are going to begin to make claims that are perverse and wrong, and they're going to draw away disciples after themselves. They're going to lead the weak astray. So he says, be aware of this. But then when he commends them to God and the word of his grace, I believe what he's doing is letting them know the area where the wolves and divisive people are going to be attacking. It's going to have to do with the doctrine of God's grace. And if you look at history, the the heretics, usually they had attacked the doctrine of God, who he was, but it always got around to denying faith in Christ as the sole means of receiving forgiveness of sins. They always add works, whether they're Judaizers or just works uh, righteousness individuals, however that came about. So they'd been warned is the point. That's why I wanted to read that. So Christ says to the angel of the Ephesian church, right, these things says, uh, the one who was holding the seven stars in his right hand, the one who was walking in the midst of the seven golden candles or lampstands. I perceive your works, he said. Note that he saw them. You know, when he says, I know the word there, it's oida. It means to perceive. It's knowledge, but it's perceptive knowledge. And that's both in God and men. That's part of God's image in us. We have this perceptive knowledge. You know, you see things, but you actually understand what they are when you see them. And that's what Jesus is saying. I perceive your works and your labor and your patience. And he says and that you're not able to tolerate evil men. That's really what that means. You're not able, you don't put up with it. You do not tolerate. You're not able to. When men came in that were speaking perverse things, they had been warned. They knew it. They identified it. They dealt with it. And note, and you have tested those who are claiming to be apostles. You notice this isn't just a first century problem, is it? It's come back. Now we have people, false teachers, liars, running around claiming that they have apostolic authority. It's like, well, what does that mean? They claim that they're apostles. You know, God is restoring the church. I mean, every, I've told people, whenever you hear the word restoration, run. Because what they usually say is, well, the church has been corrupted for almost its entire history. But now God is raising up prophets and apostles in our group. And we are the people, you know, we're it. And so we now have the truth because our prophet, you know, whether it's Joseph Smith or, um, you know, Mary Baker Eddy or somebody like that or Ellen G. White or some of the local celebrities in our own town claiming that they have apostolic authority. So, well, what does that mean? Well, generally what it means is you as the lowly Christian who only have your Bible these individuals are above that, and you're not allowed to question what they teach because they're apostles. I've had people say to me when I've questioned the false teachings of some of these guys, you need to be careful. You could be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And my response is the Holy Spirit tells me to examine those who make these sorts of claims. You want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Don't do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do in Scripture. And, the, and my Bible says test those who test the spirits whether or not they are of God because every spirit that does not confess that means freely confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God every spirit that does is of God 
that is those who preach and teach, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation through him. John, in his first epistle, said, you can know that's from the Spirit of God. False teachers always either play down or pervert or ignore the teaching of who Jesus Christ is, that he is God come in the flesh. They deny that. Now, they deny it by not confessing it. We've talked about this before. There's a difference, actually, maybe I shouldn't even use the word deny. There's a difference between denying something and simply just not ever talking about it, okay? I remember talking to a fellow who was a Jehovah's Witness, and I told him, I said, you know, what do you guys do? Whatever you want to call the cross, they you know, say it's a torture stick or something. I said, whatever it is, it's central to our salvation, you know, and that's what the Bible says. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, I, yeah, he said, we know all about that. He said, we just don't think it's that important. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, you know, so that kind of confirmed what John said. You know, and so most of people, if you leave them alone and, like, what are they actually saying, you find out they're not confessing Christ. They're into tongues. They're into miracles. They're into prosperity. They're into power, et cetera. You know, you can do it. You know, God gave you the ability to be just like Jesus. And it's like, no, I don't think so. It's not. We're his servants. He did give us power. We do have authority. There were real apostles. We have their words. But these guys that are claiming this, and they basically are saying, you don't have the right to question what they're saying or doing. And my response is from the Bible is, oh, yes, I do, and I will. Note what he tells them. Christ commends them. He says, you have tested those who are claiming to be apostles. You put them to the test. You know, if they were, they lived at a time when there were apostles. You know, John that wrote this was one, maybe the last one living. But others were showing up saying, yes, yes, I have that apostolic authority. Uh, I had a vision or something like that. And here Christ tells the Ephesian church, you put them to the test. And what happened? You found them to be liars. Peter in Acts chapter 1 when they were trying to fill in the office that Judas had lost through apostasy, Peter said, it's necessary that one be a witness with us of the events from the baptism of John until the resurrection of Christ. So if someone claims to be an apostle, it's like, okay, have you seen the resurrection, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? Were you around during the baptism of John? Because that's what it takes to be put into the number of real apostles. Of course, these guys always have some excuse as to why they don't have to follow what the Bible says. But here he commends them. So this was a church to be commended. They understood Bible doctrine. They understood what the scripture said. They knew what an apostle really was. The good thing about this, it appears that when Paul warned them, they really took heed to that. And they passed that teaching on. Whether these elders in the church or the elders that were in the church at John's time of this writing were the same ones, it could be older men, uh, or whether those had passed and we have new ones. They remembered what Paul had told them, and they put those who claimed to be apostles, those who claimed to have authority, they put them to the test, and they found them to be liars. He said "You've in verse 3, and you have borne up, literally, and have patience. You have right now patience. You've endured. You've toiled and not grown weary. That word, uh, you've labored and not grown weary or toiled, it means literally, You, the Greek word means to toil till you're weary. Christ tells him, you've done that and yet you've not grown weary. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, well, sometimes we grow tired in the work, but never of the work of the ministry. I also thought that was a, a good way to look at it. So they're being commended for this. 
But then he has to stop and address. Everything's good up to this point. But Christ who walks in the midst of the churches, who holds the seven angels of the churches in his right hand, he knew something was amiss. And that has to be addressed. And so that's what he does beginning at verse 4. He says, but I have somewhat or something against you. Not a little thing either. Because you have left your first love. Everything was good. They were doctrinally sound. They were a pure church. They were doing what they should be doing in their labors. And they were laboring to the point of being worried. But they hadn't grown worried. But they'd left their first love. So that part was sad. And that's what he's addressing here. Everything looks good. Like I say, they had endurance. They had patience. They had effectual labor. That's the idea there. And they not wilted under the difficulties, somewhat in contending with heretics, somewhat in just the, the persecution that they endured by living in a uh, Greco-Roman culture given over to idolatry. And, you know, Ephesians, or Ephesus, rather, was a big city, and it was very luxurious and very rich. And these people were saying, hey, you know what, there's more to life than this. And they had fallen under a lot of persecution. And so Christ says, I have something against you because you've left your first love. Literally, you've forsaken it. Uh, the word there that's translated left, it means to put away. It's actually the same word used sometimes for divorce. You put away your first love. They've begun to grow cool or cold in regard to love. They were doing all the right things, but not out of fervency of love to Christ. Sometimes you can just, you know, we want our children and we want as adults to have habits of good things. You know, you want your children to learn to get up and go to work. And, you know, on the Lord's Day, you want them to go to church. So you try to instill those habits. And that's great. But you also want to make sure that habit isn't just that, the habit. You want to encourage them to do the right things because they love the Lord. And they want to do what's right, whether it's on the job or in their families, personal relationships, or serving Christ in his church, you know, being there for worship and interacting with your brothers and sisters and serving him as opportunity arises. Uh, we want to do it for the right reason. So they were doing the right things, but their love had begun to grow cold. <clears throat> uh, we should not and must not grow hardened in our love or cold because of our difficulties and sufferings. They were more stoic than they were Christian. You know, stoicism is a philosophy if you're familiar with the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, and he was about 30 years after John, but he was a Stoic. And the Stoics were like, life is sad, there's much suffering, and then you die. You just need to accept it. And so that, that's Stoicism, okay? Life's just one big whirlpool of despair and sadness and disappointment and broken promises. So, you know, uh, just accept that, okay? I think sometimes the term is suck it up, buttercup, okay? You know, this is it. You just, and that's stoicism. I must suffer, okay? And sometimes stoicism is like, I must suffer being miserable, and therefore I will try to share that with everyone else, okay? And a lot of Christians turn into stoics rather than remain Christians. A Christian is somebody that has the joy of the Lord in their life, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of troubles. I saw, sadly, because it was recorded in Iran, where they hung a Christian man. Now, obviously sad, but the man 
as they led him out. And he was being hung for no other reason that he loved Jesus. And he dared to talk to people about Christ. They accused him of blaspheming the prophet Mohammed and, you know, speaking against the Quran or whatever. But I remember seeing it. And I'm sad to say, I don't remember the gentleman's name. This is probably about five years ago. And they were leading him out to be put to death. And they hung him. And he died. But on his way to the scaffold, he was smiling. And he was saying kind words to people. He was not a stoic. He was a Christian. We'll see him again. He's with Jesus right now. Man had a family, and it was sad, and it was murder. They had no real right before God to take that man's life. But he was smiling. You read about some of the other Christian martyrs in history where we have the records of their last moments. They're generally praying for forgiveness for those that are putting them to death. They're speaking kind words. And generally, not always, but more often than not, depending on if they've been tortured or are being tortured when they die, they're generally smiling. They're happy. Not saying they're not in pain, but they recognize, I'm going to go be with Jesus. Now, not everybody does that. And that doesn't, we're not going to say, well, if they don't do that, they, they lost an opportunity. Um, you know, we never know. We're sitting here right now. Everything's, as we would say in the old days, Pichikino, everything's <laughs> fine. You, we don't know if there's some of us are going to end up dying martyrs' deaths. Things change quick in nations, you know. And so you may be called someday to lay down your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can do it with joy, recognizing that you belong to Jesus. Uh, I heard one of the Puritans made the statement that um, it's wrong for us to end our lives before it's time. And it's wrong for us to try to preserve our lives when it is time. In other words, if, if God calls you to be a martyr, that's and there's, it's inevitable. Accept it from Christ. Your life doesn't end when your physical body dies. Well, they had suffered. Nobody was being martyred at this point in the Ephesian church, but they had suffered. And so he tells them, don't be Stoics. Be Christians. The difference is a Stoic is just sad. He knows. It. Well, it's not even sad. It's just beyond, you know, like just kill your emotions and accept the suffering. Well, Jesus is telling them they'd lost their first love. In the midst of their enduring, in the midst of their contending with these heretics, they'd lost their joy. Think about all the life's trials you've gone through. It's, you might say, well, if you knew what I went through, you wouldn't be sitting there telling me I need to be joyful. I will tell you this. Yes, I would, because for every trial and suffering you've gone through and you're now using as an excuse for you not to have the joy of the Lord in your life. I can find you a Christian that's gone through 10 times more than what you've experienced who is joyful. Okay. Come with me next time I go to Africa. You want to meet people who are suffering, but are joyful. I saw so many happy believers over there and I'm thinking, whoa, the level of poverty here is off the scale. There's no poor people in the United States. Okay. And yet the brothers and sisters there, they're not happy about being poor, okay? But they're happy in Jesus, the ones that, are, that love the Lord, because they know this is not our permanent home. And with what they have, they give God thanks, and they get by, and they do pretty good. But the point is, is that we should never allow our sufferings to be an excuse for us to turn our back on our first love. And our first love is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, little ones and old ones, too, to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You know, your first love is knowing Jesus loves him. Remember what John said in his epistle? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. You want to get your first love back? Start focusing on his love to you. 
Recognize, yeah, I don't love the Lord like I should. Okay, acknowledge that. That's a sin, okay? Call it what it is. It's not just a lack. It's a sin. That's why, what does he do when he says you left your first love? Does he say, it's okay? No, what does he say? What does he tell him to do? Repent. Repentance has to do with sin, okay? And the word repentance, metanoia in Greek, metanao, um, the verb means to turn away in Hebrew, shuv, but also in Greek, it means to have a changed mind, to look at things differently. It, actually, some say it's like when you look back at something and you realize, well, that was wrong, okay? To understand things in the perspective of God's word. Repentance means start viewing things differently, yourself, God, others, your circumstances, your situation. And nobody tells them, remember first, to repent, he says, remember from where you've fallen, Remember where, where you fell from. Think back what it was like. Those times when the Lord was close or you were close to the Lord and you realized, man, I've had, I have had real joy in my Christian life. There's been times when I, I was really thankful to the Lord I, and I, seemed like I had real close fellowship with him. Okay, it's, I mean, you know the story. I've probably told it before at this point. I probably have told every story that I ever tell at least once or twice before. Okay. But, you know, the man and his wife, they were driving down the road. You might have heard that one. And she was reminiscing as they're driving down. She says, oh, sweetheart, remember when we were, were first married, how we used to just snuggle up and sit so close together when we drive? And we don't do that anymore. And the story is her husband looked over at her and he said, I didn't move. And that's kind of how it is with our love for God. You know, it's like, I remember those close times. Well, God didn't move. He still loves you. Okay, and you're like, yeah, I remember those times I really loved the Lord because I was aware of his love. And Jesus meant everything to me. Well, Jesus says, remember where you've fallen. It's okay to think back. Remember that because God didn't move. You did. Okay. You know the old saying, you know, some people write in their Bibles, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Those little sins, the little foxes, it says, uh, in the Song of Psalms, the little foxes that spoil the vines, okay? It's those little sins. We begin to break fellowship. We don't really even realize it sometimes, but eventually then we're just living our lives. We, we're still Christians. We still have a love for the Lord, but it's not like it was. And notice Jesus doesn't say you've left all your love for him when he writes to the, the Ephesian church here. He says you've left your first love. He didn't say you don't love me. He just said it's not like it should be. Okay, and so that's what they were called to do. Remember and then repent. And then note what he says, do. Do the first works. Now, he doesn't just say go back and really work on getting the first emotions back, okay, or your feelings, okay, or something like that. That will come in times, like in a marriage, you know. Um, sometimes husbands and wives, those of you who are married, I know you might not have ever thought this. Once in a while, you don't necessarily feel all that lovey-dovey towards your spouse, okay. Well, you're committed to your spouse, and the love, the feeling emerges out of the commitment, not vice versa. We live in a time in life now where people say, well, we're getting a divorce because she's just not making me happy anymore. Really? Because that's really not what she's supposed to do. You're supposed to make her happy. And the wife says, well, he's not making me. Well, no. You get two people in a relationship that are committed to each other's happiness. It can be pleasant. But when you get people that are trying to extract, yeah, your job is to make me happy. And if you don't do that, I'm out of here. Well, that's why we're seeing the divorce rate up you know, above 50%. Because people are all messed up in their thinking about that. Marriage is a commitment. Love involves commitment. 
till death do us part, is what the, the vows say. Here we see Christ calling his church back to its first love. What about the feelings? Those will come. But recognize, okay, what, what are the first works? You know, prayer, reading the Bible, having the fear of God, talking to others about Jesus, because that's what's in your heart. Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're never speaking to anyone about the Lord Jesus Christ, how much do you really love him? You know, most people, you, you spend a little bit of time with him, you find out what they love, whether it's a hobby or it's something, you know, sometimes family, different things. You can find out out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks for good or ill. But also when it's not abundantly in the heart, things don't get talked about. Well, what happened? Well, because, you know, in order for a stream to flow out, it's got to have intake. You know, the, when the dam gets real low, there's not a lot of water coming out. When it gets real high, the water's coming out. When it gets too high, the water's coming no matter what they try to do because it overflows. You want to have your heart overflowing with the things of God. It starts with calling on the Lord. Say, Lord, please do this work in me. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So to have a cooled love for the Lord, it is actually a most serious sin. It's not something like Jesus isn't saying, oh, you have the option of returning to your first love. He doesn't say that. He's commanding them that when he says repent, that's in the imperative. This is something they must do. He tells them repent. He doesn't say just get used to living without your first love. He says you need to repent. This is a sin. Why is it such a serious sin? Because it opens the door for every other sin that there is. Remember Joseph in Egypt? He was tempted, wasn't he? What did he do? He got out of there. What did he say? I can't do a sin like this against God. Joseph loved God. That's what caused him to flee temptation. You know, when somebody says something to you, or if you're searching the internet and something comes up that's vile and filthy, I hope you love Jesus enough to turn away from sin. You've got to do it. When temptation comes, you need to be reminded, you know what? Jesus loves me and I love him. And one of our prayers should be, Lord Jesus, give me grace to love you enough to turn away from sin when I'm tempted. Okay, that's the key. Loving the Lord, loving others, okay? But that'll flow, that your love for others will flow out of that. But you need to put the Lord first because a, a cooled off love for the Lord opens the door for every other sin. That's why Jesus calls them to a renewed repentance and a return to their first works. Because when you don't love the Lord as you ought to, you're gonna not be doing the things you should be doing as you ought to. That's true on the job, in the home, and everything else you're doing. They're told to remember where they once stood when their first love for Christ. By this, they can remember and see how far they've fallen from their first love and the joy they once knew. Because if you don't love the Lord, you're not going to be happy in Jesus. All right, so we find in verse 5, he goes on and says, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first work. And then there's a warning, Okay. But he tells them, repent, turn is the Hebrew word, shuv, okay? In uh, Lamentations 5.21, we return thou us, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. Kind of echoes what we, or Revelation echoes what was said by uh, Jeremiah in Lamentations. In Micah 7.19, there's encouragement. Micah wrote, said, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
Micah had that hope. You know what? The Lord's going to do this. We're going to trust him. We're going to ask him to do it. In Zechariah 1, 3, God says, Therefore say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means God of armies, Yahweh of armies, okay? He says, turn again, in Lamentations again, in verse uh, 40 and 41 of chapter 3. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts with our hands unto God in the heavens. So note that. Let's search our hearts, our ways, and try and turn again to the Lord. So he calls the Ephesians to do again the first works. As I mentioned, he doesn't call them to do their first emotions. That will come in time. But to love the Lord and to do what they were doing. The call to repentance comes with the warning, though, we see in the second half of that. Uh, if it's ignored, there will be consequences. He who walks in the midst of the churches will not be mocked or, t- or be taken lightly. If they do not repent and do not do the first works, Christ will swiftly come and remove their lampstand from its place. It is possible for churches to become non-churches. We see this in our own country where we've seen a lot of denominations that were once known for their orthodoxy and commitment to the Bible, completely abandoning the scriptures and, you know, ordaining immoral people into the ministry and promoting all kinds of evil. So it is possible for churches to become non-churches. Those who will not shine their light may have that light removed. Those who refuse to walk in the light what are they going to have? Darkness. That's uh, what will be left to them to stumble and fall in. Well, we move on. Verse 6, though, Christ, in, in rebuking his people in the Ephesian church, also encourages them. Generally, when rebukes go forth, the, the real tender-hearted lambs are the ones that take it the hardest. And they're the ones that kind of melt under the rebukes, whereas those that are hardened in sin it's like water on a duck's back. It doesn't really penetrate. It doesn't affect him hardly at all. And so often when Christ rebukes people, if it's in a mixed group like a church congregation would be, he immediately comes in with a word of comfort to those who tremble at the word of God. And so I think that's what's going on here. He says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he continues to commend him. That's kind of in one sense, a paradox, can't really say it's humorous, but funny in the sense of it being a paradox. They messed up on their love, but they had their hate down correctly. Okay. Uh, you know, and so they hate, and know what it says. He doesn't say they hated the Nicolaitans. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So uh, they were pretty, pretty clear in that and uh, that they didn't despise the individuals necessarily that were, uh, falling in or promoting those things, they were trying to recover them, we hope. Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, says a similar thing, and we would do well to read it, because we do have to contend with false teachings in our own generation, and we don't want to lose sight of what's important. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 24, Paul said this. Now, note this. This, this is good, because this is kind of like uh, if you're on the Internet, you know, if you want to argue with someone, and they want to argue with you, and if you ever spend any time on the Internet, you're going to see foolish arguments all over the place among Christians. So Paul writes in verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Okay, you're going to have a lot less uh, on time on the internet, probably, if you remember that. Knowing that they generate strife. And then here's what he says, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, 
but be gentle to all. You know, Augustine said if we were a little kinder to the people that we consider heretics, we would be recovering them, okay? Uh, not, he's not saying you put up with their error. You don't tolerate bad behavior, immorality, profanity, things like that. You don't put up with that. But you can still show compassion to people by speaking the truth to them in love. But he says, be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. The old King James says, those who oppose themselves. And I love that, the way that's rendered. But he said, those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. Note that when Christ tells you to repent, you need to go to him and say, Lord, you have to give me that. I am incapable of repenting in my own power. Okay. Paul told Timothy, be gentle with them. If perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So Paul tells Timothy, be gentle with all of them. Even those that are, we'd call, you know, in heretical teachings or false cults, things like that. Don't be mean to them. Speak the truth in love. Now, they may say, oh, you're attacking me personally. Make sure that's a false charge. Let them know, no, I'm actually trying to help you, you know, but, but love them enough to speak the truth to them. Don't endorse their false teachings. So we see here in uh, verse 6, this, this call or this commendation, rather, and then we see in verse 7 a uh, Again, the call to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is addressed to the churches. He who has an ear, Jesus said, you know, he that has an ear, let him hear. That appears in the Gospels multiple times. The idea is that if you're spiritually alive, if you've been born again, and you have the Holy Spirit, you ought to be able to hear what God's Word says and to receive it. And that's what Christ is saying here, I believe. If you have an ear, and by the way, that's also an imperative. He who has an ear must hear. You need to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches because it might directly apply to Ephesus, but in general, it applies to all of us because it doesn't say, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church in Ephesus. It doesn't say that, does it? To the churches. We're a church. This applies to us. We need to listen to this. But then he gives the promise, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there's a promise there. But to those who are victorious, John tells us in 1 John 5, 4, that this is the victory over the world, even our faith, trusting in Christ. And elsewhere we're told of faith that works by love. So what do we take away from this? Well, first, we must labor for Christ and be patient under trials and persecutions. You don't have to like it. You don't have to pretend that you do when you're going through rough times, whether health concerns or personal relationships or persecution from outside or inside. You don't have to say, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm so happy to be persecuted. But you can say, I'm in God's hands. I'm going to trust the Lord through this. Okay. Secondly, we need to keep our first love for Christ just that first. Your love for Christ, your relationship with him is primary in your life. All right. And if it's not, you need to go to Jesus and say, Lord, I need help because I am so far away from my first love. I don't even know where to start. Go to Jesus. That's where to start. Okay. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not trying to twist scripture, but when he said, I am the way, we can make an application. It's also the way back. Okay. If you're not sure where you're at, Jesus is a shepherd. What does he say he, the shepherd does when one sheep goes astray? He goes out and finds it. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and brings it back. 
Isaiah said in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ loves you. If you feel like, man, I am so far from being what I should, just say, Lord Jesus, help me. He's more willing to restore you and give you that joy and renew your first love than you can even imagine. Okay, trust him to do it. Say, Lord, I need that, but I can't do it on my own strength. Trust him, pray, ask him to do it. You'll be surprised. Keep your first love first, primary, in your heart, in your mind, and in your work. Thirdly, we must love what God loves and hate what God hates. And again, note they were commended for hating the works of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolaitans themselves. We may hate and must hate every false doctrine, but not the people who hold such teachings, or rather those who are held captive in spiritual slavery and darkness by such false teachings. Fourthly, we must realize that Christ is not indifferent to our spiritual condition. You know, we may be at times, but he's never that way, whether individually or as corporately as a church. Whether it's our zeal or lack thereof, he will encourage us and, if need be, rebuke and chasten us. As he says in chapter 3, verse 10, when speaking to the Laodicean church, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So if you're like, wow, Lord, I think he's really kind of rebuking me and I feel like I'm coming under chastisement, it means God loves you. The writer of the Hebrews says, if you sin and you don't get chastised, it means you're illegitimate because God chastens every one of his children. So if you think you're getting away with stuff, that's a sign that you're not, your father's not really who you're saying he is. You don't belong to God. God chastens his own. Good thing to do is ask God to keep you from doing things that will necessitate chastisement. Fifth, we must learn to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches and the Holy Scriptures and recognize there's application to us. Sixth, we must fight and overcome everything that would hinder our growth and our love for Christ and the peace and safety of his church. Just keep in mind, this is addressed to the church. It applies to individuals, but he's talking to us corporately, and we need to see ourselves that way. And also, sixthly, then we must fight and overcome everything that would hinder our growth in peace and uh, keep us from really walking with Christ. Seventh, I should say, there will be rewards for those who overcome. Christ notices that he does the work in you, and then he rewards it for being done. That's the kind of gracious Savior we serve. Faith is the victory. And, you know, when we're laboring, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, some build, it's like wood, hay and stubble. Others, it's gold, silver and precious stones. He said, every man's work will be tried by the fire. So if all you're building in this life is wood, hay and stubble, that is those things that won't endure into eternity. Then you've wasted your life. Gold, silver and precious stones. And he's not talking about acquiring actual physical gold, silver and precious. Stones. He's talking about those things that are going to endure. They can't be burned up that are refined by difficulty. And if I said those men, that's 1 Corinthians, by the way, chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. He said, you'll receive a reward. There will be rewards. He that overcomes, Christ said, you get to eat from the tree of life that's in the midst of the garden. C.T. Studd said it this way. I'll end with this. The poem you're probably familiar with. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Okay. In other words, if I used the life God gave me to serve him and made it count for something because of his grace, praise God. That's what we need to be aiming at. And that's what this epistle was all about. Let's pray. 
Gracious God, seal to our hearts the truth of your word and bring it about in our lives on a practical level, we pray. And keep us in your love and grace. This we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Now we have a 